Um, I was trying to figure out with, uh, with Drew why we ended so early, and we were deciding between either Stuart didn't preach as long or the announcement guy was much shorter than usual. I don't know which it was, but here we are starting Sunday school 10 minutes early. Wow. How, how anti-Big Woods is this? But it's all right. Um, we will take whatever time we have. And uh, if that means <laughs> going to 1045, so be it. We'll see. Probably not. I don't know. But you're, you're going to be the, the determining factor on that, uh, how much input and whatnot there is. So, um, you see, here, here's the awkward thing. <clears throat> uh, I could probably have covered three today, but I only planned for one. Because, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to think that I have learned from history. But we'll see. Maybe we'll end with like 25 minutes left to spare. But anyway, we should, we should jump in, which means that we should open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a, a privilege it is, first off, to, to call you Father, but secondly, to gather here this morning as your children. And we're thankful for the word that we've already heard preached this morning uh, from Stuart. And we ask that you would help us uh, to continue to think on these things, that you would help us to live uh, in light of the joy that has been provided for us by the perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now as we jump into uh, some other things, some different topics uh, from your word, we pray and ask God that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to know, firstly, uh, what it is that your word says, but then also um, what it means, and finally, what it requires of us. Help us then to live empowered by your Spirit to be faithful uh, to those things, and we pray, uh, God, that you would uh, help us to be a body that practices well uh, the one another commands. Uh, so we're thankful that we've had this time together, uh, and we ask that uh, it would uh, send reverberations even into the future of of benefit to us as a body, uh, that we would uh, know how it is that we are called to interact with one another and that we would do so according to your word. Uh, we're thankful and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning uh, we're looking at one, one another command uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you'd like to, to turn there to be ready. Um, but... I did just even want to take note of a few of the one another commands that we didn't cover. And uh, when I was emailing Dr. Gray about um, about teaching for me a few weeks ago, uh, he asked for a list of of all of the things, all of the one another commands that um, that we had covered up until that point. And so I sent it to him, and he emailed back and he said, "Wow, we've covered that many." And I emailed back and I said, wow, I had the exact opposite reaction. That's all we covered? <clears throat> but uh, I, I have enjoyed uh, this series and hope 
you have as well, uh, maybe found some benefit from it, um, and just wanted to let you know, I guess, um, partly because of maybe my slowness of speech, I don't know, um, the ones that we've missed out on. Uh, there are plenty of others, and we could have looked at things such as exhort one another from Hebrews 3.13, or encourage one another, which actually we will make reference to today, First um, Thessalonians 4.18. We could have looked at greet one another with a holy kiss from Romans 16.16. 16. We could have looked at show hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4.9. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10. Wash one another's feet, John 13.14. Wait for one another, 1 Corinthians 11.33. Do not deprive one another, 1 Corinthians 7.5. And, and there are others. And there are, there are things um, that I think would have been beneficial for us, but we just didn't have time to get to. Um, in that list that I just read, though, there are, there are two commands that um, I have experienced, I have experience with, maybe I should say, and maybe even I should say personal experience with, um, that we don't practice here, but I did in the church that I grew up in. Any, anyone want to take a guess at what those two one another commands might be? Matt? Washing feet, Washing feet is, one and a, is one of them. And it, it, is that an invitation? Or, okay. Whatever you want to take. <laughs> uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss. Um, I grew up in a church that practiced and still does both of those things. We would have regular love feasts. Uh, which consisted of a time of singing, a simple meal, communion, uh, and then foot washing that culminated with a holy kiss. Uh, And as far as I know, I've not checked this recently, but I don't think think my record would be defeated. Um, I hold the record for the biggest feat that my former pastor has ever washed. So... Thank you, thank you. Round of applause. I, I grew up downstream from a nuclear power plant, so. Uh, but the, the, the foot washing ceremony was taken from the example of Jesus in John chapter 13. We've, we've looked at that passage here in this class already. Um, and I just think it's, it's interesting, and this is just kind of transitional into what I want to talk about this morning. Um, foot washing in, in some churches and even... Uh, we'll see in some Baptist confessions of faith from the 18th century listed foot washing as an ordinance of the church. So not just two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they added in the third of foot washing. I think it's good practice. I mean, I, I do kind of miss the, the love feasts and foot washing um, as... Weird as it can be, humbling maybe is the better word. I think it's a good experience. I don't, however, think that it is an ordinance that the church is commanded to continue practicing in the same way that baptism in the Lord's Supper would be. Uh, That said, if there are any elders present who remember 
Um, when I was president of New Life, as a junior in college, we did a 30-hour famine, and in order to break the fast together, I organized a love feast. Uh, Craig, Dr. Gray, do you remember that? Anyone else who would have been there? You, you were there? Sierra was there as a student? Um, the elders led us in communion, which if I'm just completely honest, is not something that I would do today as I have developed in my understanding of what communion is, but we can talk about that at another time if you'd like. Um, And so we broke the fast with a, a simple meal, communion, and we washed one another's feet. I'm pretty sure either I washed Matt's or Matt washed my feet. I don't know, but that was something that has been practiced at least once at Big Woods. Maybe there were others before that. Um, I will say that there were no holy kisses shared at that love feast. So I don't know if it was actually a love feast, but it's fine. And, and so in, in this practice, what the Lord Jesus modeled for us in John chapter 13 by the washing of feet is servanthood. And, and servanthood has been a central theme in our time together as we've looked at these different one another commands. It's rooted in Philippians chapter 2. That's where we started, where I laid the case for this class, where Paul tells us that Jesus empties himself and takes on the form of a servant. Now, Philippians 2 is a great Christmas passage where it explains what exactly takes place in Jesus taking on flesh Uh, where he adds to himself a human nature. Uh, He he assumes our form. And even in his humbled state, instead of demanding to be served, he serves. And this, this is, according to Paul, the mindset that we need to have towards one another. Where we should daily make it our aim to count others more significant than ourselves. So Paul eventually gets to, in his, in his explanation of, of the emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. And I think that's what the one another commands have been all about. We've been challenged each week, or at least I have, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on one another. We are to see others as more important. And so at the heart of the one another commands is an other's focus like what Jesus modeled for us when He bent, He stooped to wash the disciples' feet, but also when He stooped to take on human flesh and come to this earth uh, in, in a way that is like us. And so with that being said, we come to our final command. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read verse 11. We will eventually get some more context for this. But the one another command, and there are actually, I guess, technically two listed in this verse. So hey, Dave, we are getting to two. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In this passage, we get to see 
Paul, the pastor. So Paul is an apostle, so he's not technically a pastor, but he's offering uh, what, 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 what we could take as an example for uh, pastoral ministry. The heart of the pastor is what Paul is modeling here. And, and in order for us to rightly understand what he means by encourage and build one another up, I think we need to read the verses that come before this command because as you saw, hopefully, verse 11 starts with the word therefore. And what are we supposed to do with the word therefore? Let's find out what it's there for. Uh, so I, I want to set the scene and then read uh, some of chapter 4 through verse 511. Um, the portion of the letter that we're considering today is, is an occasional response. Which means that, that the church at Thessalonica has asked Paul specific questions. And, and I think they, they've asked two questions in mind. We don't, we don't have record of what exactly it is they asked him. But based on what Paul says, we can infer the questions. Maybe it's like Bible study jeopardy. I don't know. What is the answer to this question? That's how, it, that's how that works, right? You, thank you. That was not in my notes. So if it didn't work, <laughs> it wasn't going to be good. But anyway, they want to know, I think, basically two things. Those two things, how can I live a life that pleases God, and what are the end times going to look like? Now, these are questions that we're still asking today, right? And and so I think that this passage should be a source of great comfort to us as we see these questions answered in God's inspired and inerrant Word. So I want to read from... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll start in verse 13 and read through verse 11 because I don't think this command makes sense apart from this context. And, and not only that, but if we were to read this command without the context that comes before, we probably would, would import a worldly understanding of encouragement into this passage. And I don't think um, that is what Paul uh, I think the worldly understanding that we would import would be very different from what Paul is actually saying based on the context. So, starting in 4.13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. 
and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So I, do, I have a few questions that I just want to ask and have a little bit of discussion on. But, but before we get to that, can I ask you, are there any verses in, in what I just read that stick out to you as something to cling to? For instance, when it says, we who are alive who are left, we caught up with him in the clouds, and so we will always be with the Lord. Great comfort and encouragement we can take from that. Craig? Uh, an epoch is a is a period of time. Okay. Yeah, ESV would translate it seasons. Okay, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So, is he saying that this body of believers here has a really good understanding of what's happening, or they are aware of what is that? What's he getting at with that? Yeah, I, th- I think he's saying to them. <clears throat> um, You've already received instruction because uh, I think he's answering specifically their question on the coming of the Lord. What, the, what are the end times going to look like? Uh, 4.13 and through 18 is what precedes that. And he says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you've no need to have anything written to you. So he's saying, you're asking me this question. You've already received instruction on it, but for your comfort and for the good of the church, even for us today, uh, I think he goes on to further explain and comfort them with the words. He Basically, what I think we'll see is he's modeling for us what he's commanding in verse 11. And that's where he starts. Does that make any sense? Helpful? Yeah, yeah. You have a follow-up? Thank you. Okay. Jim? I think also uh, when he said to encourage one another, also in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, it says, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also suffer like things of your own countrymen, even as made of the, of the Jews, and so on. So, they were, they suffered persecution just as Paul did. Mm-hmm. 
And so are there, is there a specific verse in what we read that sticks out, something that you would cling to? Well, yeah. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with these words. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the other verse that sticks out to me um, in 5 <clears throat> is verse 9, which we will come back to. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I mean, that'll preach right there. And hopefully it does here in a minute. But based on what we read, so 1 Thessalonians 4.13-5.11, through 511, if you had to summarize the theme of that passage, how would you do so? Maybe use one word, maybe a sentence. What do you think... Paul is specifically addressing there. Craig. Maranatha. What what does that mean, Craig? It does. Yeah. That, that's good. You had to go to another language to do it. That's fine. I, I'll allow it. It's not cheating. Um... I believe it's Greek. That's, it. That's what's in Revelation. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. So, so Paul is using the return of Christ in an encouraging way to build up this body and us to keep our eyes fixed on that reality that is, that is sure and coming, uh, and so, I think that's a good summary, Craig, um, that builds the foundation for the command that he gives in verse 11. So then, based on that passage, 4.13 to 5.11, what encouragement is Paul modeling for this church? If you just had to say, um, based on what we read, this is how we should encourage one another. How would you answer that one? When in doubt, just go to Craig, I guess. Oh, Justin, all right, here we go. Uh, I would say probably to have self-control to set apart from the traditional ways of this world. So be different. Yeah, yeah, and, and so in, in our differentness, if that's, I'm allowed to make up words if that's not a word, uh, in our differentness from the world, there's a reason that we are different. We've been called out, and we've been called out, sanctified as holy, because we've been saved. And so I, I think that verse 9 is pivotal in this, that because God has saved us from the wrath to come, just as Justin has said, we're to be different, and we're specifically to be different in our encouragement to one another. And so, because we are resting secure in the promise of Christ, the promise that He's coming back, and the promise that God has saved us from the wrath to come, we're different. And so, a similar question based on what Paul models 
I think, I think we kind of get a, a glimpse of what the motivation of our encouragement is meant to be. And so, so in our conversation with one another, as we're encouraging one another, we're not, we're not talking like flattery here. We're not talking, hey, great Christmas tie. Oh, thanks. Zay picked it out, so, you know. We're, we're not talking about things like that. <clears throat> we're, we're talking about things that keep our eyes on the fact that we are secure in Christ. So, the, so the, the motivation for our encouragement is our secure salvation. Which that is to say, the motivation for biblical encouragement goes much deeper than external compliments. I do think those serve a purpose. I'm not saying that you, know, you can't say nice tie to someone. That's fine. You can do that. I would say, though, it can lead to sin in both the complimenter and the complimented in the form of either flattery or pride. Um, however, the deeper and lasting encouragement that Paul models for us in this passage is focused on the objective work of Christ on our behalf and our security in Him. And, and so I think there's a logic to this passage. That's why we started in, in verse 13. And, and before Paul commands something, he not only models it, but he gives us theological foundation for how we are to live our lives. I do want to read just this portion from this devotional uh, that has given uh, birth to this class. Uh, so the author says, the eight verses that precede the command to build others up aren't happy words and hallmark card sentiments. They're about the return of Christ. Through this lens, we see six reasons to intentionally build up the brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those six reasons. Firstly, the day of the Lord is coming. Maranatha. So we encourage one another because the return of Christ is sure. But then the logic of the passage continues. And the second reason is that this should not be surprising to us. So as Craig drew out already in 5.1, He's saying, there's no need for me to write to you about this. You already know it. And in a similar way, the return of Christ is not something that should be shocking to us. We know that it is promised in the Word of God, and we are to expect it and wait for it. So the day of the Lord is coming. It should not surprise us. Thirdly, we're children of the light and of the day, not children of the darkness or night. And so we've been, we've been called out. We've been brought into the light. We are in, uh, what is it, Colossians 1, 15 and following. We have been brought out from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And there's something about light in there too. Go read First Corinthians, or Colossians 1. Just, just read all of it. It's like around somewhere in 15. We're children of the light. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us from one another. Number four, since we know Jesus is coming, we need to watch for Him. We need to keep our eyes fixed and, and, and be waiting expectantly for His return. Fifthly, as we watch, we need to protect our hearts with faith and love and our minds with the hope of salvation. 
Salvation has been won for us, which leads to the sixth and final reason. Because of Jesus, our destiny is hope, not wrath. And so the, the author continues, when, when you send a note of encouragement that you've been meaning to write, when you take the time to text a friend that you see Christ working in her heart, when you pause to say thank you to someone for building up the kingdom, you're choosing not to waste the weight by pointing others to the promised hope of Christ's imminent return. So, so the encouragement that we offer to one another it is meant to, to focus our eyes on the sure and steady hope of our salvation in Christ. It's meant to, to picture that. And so, in our words, I, I like what the author says, we don't waste the weight. Kimber. A word that jumped out at me was um, verse 6 and 7. Let us not speak as others do, but let us be alert and sober. In, in light of thinking about the return of Christ back in the 70s when I put my trust in Christ mm-hmm. many years ago, um, that, was a, that was almost a constant source of, of conversation in amongst believers. We were talking about the return of Christ. As the years go by, it's not always the con- it hasn't been the constant mm-hmm. focus. We aren't thinking, so we need to be Reminded right. and encouraged to keep alert. You know, don't slip into the darkness. Don't we get? It's so easy to get distracted that we, you know, we need each other to be encouraging each other. You know, to stay faithful right. and to keep the focus and be alert because we do have an enemy that's out there that wants to distract us and not be effective. Yeah, absolutely. And and an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion who would seek to take our eyes off of what, what has been secured for us by Christ. Um, my footnote's not working, so I can't tell you who said this. I forget which one it is. But one commentator said it, says it this way. Verses 9 through 11 are Paul's final words of encouragement with regard to the Lord's coming. The Thessalonians were chosen for salvation. Compare with chapter 1, verse 4. They need not fear the coming judgment. Chapter 5, verse 9. Verses 10 and 11 round off Paul's discussion. Here's another word for you, Craig. Parousia. Yeah. Could, could you tell us what it means? Oh, so, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get you on the next one. Uh, the return of Christ. It's another way of saying it. Uh, so verse 10, uh, verses 10 and 11 round off Paul's discussion of the return of Christ. Verse 10 harks back to the reference to those who are asleep in the Lord in 4.13, which is a metaphor for those who have died. And Paul's assurance that whether dead or alive at the Lord's return, all Christians would join him and be with him forever. Verse 11 parallels 4.18. Paul's purpose had been the same in both sections of his discussion about the Lord's return. To encourage the Thessalonians about the Christian hope. The form may 
have been that of traditional ethical teaching, how to live, which we have looked at briefly, but also could be the purpose was to comfort and strengthen the church at Thessalonica. But this is, this is a thoroughly pastoral concern from Paul, that, that there's some amount of, of worry within this body, and Paul is saying to them, you have hope. Keep your eyes fixed there. Go ahead, Jim. And just remember, we as Christians right now, we have written the Word of God. And we can read it any time. Yeah. Any time of the year or anything. Back yeah. then, when Paul wrote something, gave it to Timothy, for example, or he just came to a church. And yeah. They did not have copies. Right. Not everyone could take the, the copy home and say, oh, I remember what he said. Yeah. So, you know, it was a big problem. Yeah. And, and that's a great segue into uh, reading through the Bible in 2022. Thanks, Jim. That, I, we didn't talk about that, did we? No. no. Um, we have a great privilege. And, and if, we, if we realize even the process of, of how the Word got from Thessalonica to us today, I mean, God's hand has been at work in preserving His Word and, and making sure that, that we could have it today to learn from um, and it is my opinion that we should take full advantage of that uh, we've got more translations than we know what to do with um, possibly even more copies of the bible in our homes than than some languages have in in in, in this entirety um, and so i agree jim <laughs> we should read it we should know it um, and because by the Word of God, we come to be, to be even more sure of the hope that has been won for us in Christ. And so the, the encouragement that, that Paul is aiming at here is meant to fix our eyes on that hope. In what Paul models, I think what we see is, is how objective truth affects our subjective experience. Now let me explain in verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul notes the objective truth. <clears throat> he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is the foundation. Okay, this is what we believe. Jesus died and rose again. This is the objective truth. This is experience-altering truth. Which is to say, since this is true, our lives should change. The questions this church was asking him, how do we live godly lives, and what will the return of Christ look like, do not have answers outside of the death and resurrection of Christ. Which is to say, godly living is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross and what happened when He rose to life. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, paying our penalty, freeing us from its chains. But wait, there's more. Because of the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit has been sent to live inside of us. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us or enables us to live godly lives. But what about their second question? What is the return of Christ going to look like? I think the summary of what Paul teaches them is basically this. Don't focus on the how. Just focus on being ready. 
Because you know it's going to happen. And, and, and how it's going to happen is of no consequence. That it's going to happen is what matters. Uh, and so as one of my favorite rappers says, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. And, and I mean, if we could adopt that as a motto for the Christian life, if you stay ready for the return of Christ, you won't be caught like a thief in the night. Someone who is... I, I recently had this experience. Someone who is trying to get into your house without them being noticed. They want to come and surprise you. Now, I probably should clarify that. He was highly intoxicated and um, probably thought it was his own home. This was last week. And it's fine now, but it was a little weird and probably even a good, timely illustration because Paul uses the example of thief in the night. When you see somebody trying to get in your side door at four in the morning, it really catches you off guard. And I had to like, like double take a couple times. And, and so what Paul is saying is that's not what, what we should, should view the return of Christ as. We know it's happening. And, and so we stay ready. We see that in, in 5.6 where he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The return of Christ, then, is not something Christians are to fear. We don't fear the return of Christ because we are secure in the finished work of Christ. And that's, that's why I love verse 9. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that verse and, and what it teaches us, if, if, we would, if we would grasp that in such a way that it becomes the fuel of our encouragement for one another, I'd be willing to bet that that we would be filled with much more hope, maybe even much more joy, as we reminded this morning. And our focus would, would, be, would be clearly set each day as we say, you know what? I'm secure in the finished work of Christ. I have that hope to cling to. And now I'm going to live my life. And, and I think it all then flows from there that if that is our focus, then our lives are lived for the glory of God. When we remember that we have eternal life in Christ, our words to others will reflect that by encouraging and building up and pointing one another to that fact instead of tearing down. And I, I think that's the context in which Paul gives this command to encourage and build one another up. Any, any thoughts, questions, comments, complaints? Morgan. Luke's running. Um, this is, uh, I kind of took it a bit out of 
which is obviously ideal when you're doing Bible. Um, <laughs> that was sarcasm. For the <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> but the section of the verse where it's talking about us not being um, of the night mm-hmm. and um, instead being of the day. And I don't know, I was talking with my brother uh, pretty recently. And we were kind of both kind of coming to the realization um, just that, you know, good things don't tend to happen in the night. It's true. They, it's it, like a perfect um, illustration, both you know, physically and spiritually. Yeah. Of, you know, we are not, if we are to live as Christ's, um, as Christ's little Christians, you know, yeah. uh, little Christ's, um, we are, you know, we will not thrive in the night. And that time is where we are vulnerable mm-hmm. and fall prey to, you know, the things that can draw us away from God. And that was just something that we kind of both kind of came to the realization of uh, together. But I just found it very appropriate for, you know, that illustration that it could be taken in both that physical sense. Mm-hmm. And that we should not be, you know, seeking out activity and, you know, to do things at night, but instead to strive to be productive during the day. Yeah. And that would be glorifying God. So, I don't know, just kind of Stepping into the light in all areas of life. Uh, in, <clears throat> in college ministry, uh, specifically to couples who start dating um, within New Life, but also to a broader audience, I will often say to them that nothing holy happens after 11 p.m. Or nothing holy happens behind a closed door. I mean, obviously we can fill in however it might be. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what Morgan's getting at here with the idea of darkness. Like, like when, you, when you feel like you can keep your sin hidden, um, you're more bold to sin. And I think, I think what Paul is getting at as he writes this is that we need to come to that realization first off, but also realize that, that if, we are, if we are in the light together with one another, then based on the illustration and, and his trajectory of it and all of that, I guess, um, our, our interactions with one another are going to, to more naturally point each other to Christ. Uh, when, when, when we're in the darkness and we're hiding, thinking that we can hide our sin, even thinking that we can hide our sin from God, um, our eyes are removed from the hope that we have and they're placed on temporary pleasures. Those temporary pleasures, as Stuart reminded us, will fade. However, Paul, in what he's saying here, says our hope is secure. And so, so the, the joy, to pick it up, that we can have in walking in the light because of what Christ has done for us 
in bringing about salvation is where we need to be. Uh, we, need to, we need to be in the light, um, metaphorically, as he's speaking here. Uh, but I think then that becomes, the, as, as I already said, the fuel for our encouragement of one another. That the, that the content, even, of our encouragement becomes, I don't know, to use the scare quotes, more Christian. Instead of externals, we can focus on eternals. I forget what time we started now. That's all right. We'll just go to 11.45 now. <laughs> um, we were like 10 minutes early, so we've got a few minutes left. Yeah. And I, I do, so I have, I have some other thoughts um, to share that kind of make this a little more practical um, based on an article that I read. Um, and it's a really good article. But I had to go to the second page of Google to find it. I mean, usually... If you have to go to the second page of Google, it just doesn't exist. But anyway, I, I can share the, that unless anyone has other thoughts. All right, that's fine. So Gavin Ortland, I think it's Gavin. There are too many Ortlands. Um, I th- and I think it's the same one who wrote the book Gentle and Lowly, which I was giving out uh, a couple months ago. No, not Gavin? Dane, that's right. I think it, the author of the article was Dane. Dane Ortland. There's Dane, there's Gavin, there's Ray, and then there's another one who doesn't write as many books as the other people in his family. And they argue about it on Twitter all the time. And it's funny if you're on Twitter and into, into that sort of thing. So he, he says uh, things like this. Uh, so firstly, quote, the gospel is a message of life, of nourishing, of filling. Because of Christ's work in our behalf, we are set free from sin, adopted into God's family, welcomed in. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1.13, is a word that gives life. And the great privilege we have when we gather with other believers other obnoxious believers, other theologically imprecise believers, other spiritually sleepy believers, other frustrating believers, other sinning believers, is of passing on horizontally a taste of what we've been given vertically. Amid all my sin and messiness, in Jesus, God has given me a word of welcome, a word of love, the word of life, Philippians 2.16. Loved with this word of grace, I love others with words of grace. That, that's, that's the objective truth of the Gospel affecting our subjective experience of interacting with one another. That because we have been welcomed and encouraged and, and, and all of these things that he mentions by God, in the Gospel, we replicate with others. And so when, when Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up, it goes back to what comes beforehand. The fuel of our encouragement. 
And one of the greatest exaltations in the New Testament is about the hope of the Gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is a crucial verse. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. So having been shown life through the Word of the Gospel, we give life through the words that we use. Now, I think we need to admit that that's easier said than done. Right? All day long, we're producing words. Whether it's passing one another, saying hello in the hallway at work, chatting over lunch, greeting our spouse at the end of the day, tucking in a child with a good night story, speaking with a salesperson, talking on the phone while driving. We use a lot of words. But to take it a step further, uh, this is what Ortland says, we also use words without employing the larynx. Emails, tweets, Facebook comments, handwritten notes stuck on the fridge. He says, even in this article I'm using words. And his question is, are they bringing life? If we are to encourage one another rooted and founded on the objective truth of the Gospel, I think that's the right question to ask. Are our words bringing life? Are they building up instead of tearing down? And so how do, how do we walk in wisdom? How do we do this in such a way <clears throat> that our words inject sanity, calm, and life rather than destruction? Ortland outlines two ways specifically. He says, first, by saying nothing. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. He says, one, one major way we give life to others with our words is by not using any. It feels awkward to sit with someone depressed or overwhelmed with life and to say nothing. But what comes out of our mouth as medicine can, in fact, sicken rather than strengthen another's heart. And he references Proverbs 23.8. A sufferer, when the pain is raw, needs warm presence, not fixing words. Paul said, weep with those who weep. Not, and this is for me, not provide theological answers to those who weep. That's tough, right? I mean, I, I think some of us are more prone to, to fixing personalities than others, but when I see a problem, I want to make it right. I want to fix it. But I think what we do in that sometimes is neglect the fixing work that has already done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so it may be possible that, that the best way we can encourage someone is to let them realize this is a broken world, and the only hope we have is at the eternal hope when the Lord Jesus returns and makes all things right. Uh, Stuart talked a bit about suffering this morning. I mean, we're going to face suffering. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face difficulty. 
And, and so in those times, sometimes the best way to encourage one another is to say nothing. Instead of trying to provide the theological answers and, and tie a nice theological bow on the questions and, and say, you know what? I answered that question. I got that entirely correct. All the while, the person continues to weep. All our words tumble out impelled by one of two motives. I'm using words either for myself or for you. All of my speech is either fueled by self, no matter how good it might seem, or by love, no matter how painful it might be. The question then is why do you speak the words that you do? Why do you speak the way that you do? Is it founded on what we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.9? That God has not destined us for wrath? Or is it pointing to self or some lesser thing? Uh, Ortland said this. Uh, he just writes so vividly, so I want to share it. Are you spraying bullets? Forgetting God has set down the gun rightly aimed at you? Do you speak to others the way you wish to be spoken to? What kind of speech has given you life as you consider meaningful relationships in your past? Do you ever, ever look another human being in the face and say to them the following words, May I tell you something that I admire about you? It's one of the great secrets to Christian community that speaking a word of grace to another builds up you as much as it does the other. And so then the second thing is to say something. <laughs> if sometimes we say nothing, sometimes we say something. And the content of what we say should find its foundation, should be motivated by what Christ has accomplished for us. Fixing our eyes on the hope of our glorious resurrection with Him. In, in your short life, you have a million tiny opportunities, including a hundred today probably, to inject a small but potent dose of life and light to someone else. And as you, as you consider doing this, you'll immediately find a good reason presenting itself that seems to clearly mitigate your impulse to build another up. Some weakness, some corresponding fault will arise in your mind, canceling out your reason to encourage that person. It's easier not to do it than to do it. But indeed, with, with some people in our lives, we honestly have difficulty finding anything encouraging to say. However, once we remember the Gospel and what God has done for us in Christ, that, that outside of Christ, there was nothing that God saw in us to say, you know what? Mine. It was a free act of grace on, on His behalf. And so, modeling that for us 
need our encouragement of one another. It's not, it's not simply the fact that, that there's something admirable about another person, a believer in the Lord Jesus. It's the fact that their hope is secure that should motivate our encouraging words to one another. We, we need to remember that God did not allow our faults to prevent His Word of Gospel life coming to us. And, and we need to remember that we've given Him every reason to withhold those precious words to us. And yet, or as Stuart said, but God has lavished us with assurance of undeserved love. And by that, we come alive to encourage others. Uh, John Owen wrote that God loves life into us. So will we love life into one another? I think that is our task. We are to encourage one another. We are to build one another up. As Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And so as we, as we wrap up this one another series, uh, I would just encourage you <clears throat> to take time to consider how you might live out and practice the at least 60 one another commands that you find in Scripture. Obviously, we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're not doing it for our own glory, but we are doing it for the good of this body. That we can interact with one another, we can bear one another's burdens, we can build one another up, we can encourage one another, we can point each other to the hope that we have in Christ. Um, any questions? Other comments? Justin? Okay. The more you're talking there, this kind of clear in my mind. Mm -hmm. However we interact, whether it's an action or a word, uh, giving life was a good way of putting it, but another way that came to my mind is uh, fruit of the spirit. Mm -hmm. As just building on the characteristics of how we should be interacting with others. Yeah, yeah. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self control. Self control is just to talk or not to yeah. talk. Yeah, right. Did I forget one? Gentleness. I, you know, right. yeah. Well, I, I, I've appreciated our time together. Was, was that a hand, Craig? Okay. <laughs> I, I have appreciated our time together. Um, and... As I'll pray in a minute here, I, and I think I prayed at the beginning, I, I do hope that uh, this class, the content information covered, however you want to say it, um, reverberates through our body. Uh, that we are able to um, remember, recall. I, I think I've shared almost every week that the preparation and more so the application of these things has been difficult for me to know what's required of us in our interactions with one another um, I mean reveals sin reveals areas we fall short um, and and charges us 
to, to much more. And so you can pray for me in that regard that I'd be able to, <laughs> to practice what I preach. <laughs> but then also 